Well, I want to thank uh, our team that went. Uh, the 14 of you worked incredibly hard uh, building homes and providing a sense of permanence and security to under-resourced people, uh, providing and distributing wheelchairs in a country where about one in five people, 20% of the population, has some kind of disability, makes an incredible difference. And so we're just so privileged here at Jericho to be engaged not only in our neighborhoods, but also all over the world. And uh, in fact, one of our families this last week got on an airplane, H&K, and headed over to Central Asia to begin long-term work and service uh, over there with MB Mission. And so it's part of our heart. It's part of uh, what we would love to invite you to be a part of. You might want to consider going to Guatemala on one of our trips. We've also got two other trips happening this year. Uh, One's going to Quebec and one's going to uh, Tanzania. So uh, if you've traveled to other parts of the world, one of the things that strikes me when I travel is just the amazing diversity of foods that are available in different parts of the world. It's always fun for me to experience another culture through their foods. And I'm, I'm a little bit on the adventurous side that way. I can remember, though, traveling in the Philippines a number of years ago, and we were at a large outdoor sporting event. And so uh, there was a gentleman coming up and down the rows, just like they would here at a Canucks game or at a baseball game, and he was saying, peanuts, popcorn, balut, And I thought, well, I know the first two, but this third one, that's interesting. Let's try that, see what that is. So I called him over and I asked, well, what is this this balut thing? And uh, so he began to describe it a little bit for me. And so for the uh, uninitiated, balut is like, it's a Filipino street food, and it's a fertilized egg, usually duck. It's allowed to develop, but not develop fully, so that the yolk and the chick kind of coexist still in the same egg. And it's that delicate balance of flavor and texture that is so prized by my Filipino friends and in some other South Asian countries. So the ideal balut egg, I'll put a picture up here for you, is 17 days mature. So this is before the beak begins to harden, because that would just be crispy, and the feathers begin to develop, because that would just be gross. But if you get it before then, oh, it's very tasty, apparently so. So uh, my practice in all of the places that I've been is I will try anything once. This has been my only exception to that rule. <laughs> I, I couldn't, once he described it and I saw someone else eat it, I couldn't do it. I had too many questions in my mind. One question was, who's in charge of making sure that it's 17 days old? Like, what if this is 27 days old? And then I was confused. Should I eat it hot? Should I eat it cold? Like, just so many questions in my mind, so I respectfully declined on that one occasion. But uh, perhaps you've had an interesting experience eating food in a different country. If so, tweet it to atjerichoridge.com. We'd love to kind of share some stories and experiences that way. But it really is amazing to me how much you can learn about a culture based on the foods that are available in that culture. Food is something that fascinates us, especially from a distance. Sometimes it repulses us a little bit from a distance. And we ask, people eat what there? They, they cook that how? They mix it with that? Wow. And it just kind of, for North Americans in particular, uh, and usually the response of someone in that culture is, hey, don't knock it until you've tried it. 
You, know, you might actually enjoy it. I'm still waiting, you know, for... I have not put that on my bucket list to do before I die, to try and try balut. I, I think I'm going to pass on, on that one. But another food experience that I had traveling was we were traveling... Uh, we were going to Russia, and we were traveling through Sweden, and we'd been flying all day and all nights. So we were tired, and we were so, I was so hungry because the food portions they give you on the plane are so small. And I just thought, I have to eat something. So we're in the hotel, and I asked the, the, uh, the front desk, and they said, oh, just order pizza. You'll, it'll be pretty safe for you guys, North Americans. I thought, perfect. I'll keep it simple. I'm not going to order anything crazy. I'll go with pepperoni. So I dialed up, I ordered pepperoni pizza. I could tell there were some language issues, but I thought, pepperoni pizza, we'll get it right. This should be no problem. Well, the pizza comes and arrives, and it was loaded, loaded to the brim with hot peppers. And I was so tired and so hungry, I didn't care. <laughs> I ate the whole thing, and for days after that, I was paying for it, of eating a pizza full of nothing but cheese and hot peppers. Sometimes you're just so hungry, you'll eat anything. And you may have had experiences like that. But uh, in the gospel reading that I want to take us to today, Jesus encounters something of the same kind of experience in John chapter 6. He is surrounded by people that are so hungry, they can't even think straight. And so this morning, we're going to look at a claim that Jesus makes about himself that relates to Easter. We're going to look at a challenge that he lays down and issues And we're going to look at a promise that he makes to each and every one of us today. So let's pray as we look into God's word together this morning. God, we are indeed thankful uh, to be here, to be celebrating Easter together in this place. We're grateful for the things that you've given us. You've given us another day to draw breath, another day of life. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the gift of community. We're grateful for the gift of your son Jesus to us and your revelation to us. And so uh, we pray now that you would speak, Holy Spirit, to each and every one of our hearts in this place today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're looking this morning into uh, the fourth book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John in chapter 6. If you want to find it quickly and easily, a lot of us here at Jericho have it on our smartphones, an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U-V-E-Version.com, and you can download that and just type in John 6, it'll take you right there. Uh, Or if you have your Bible, you can uh, turn there with me. And at the start of John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, and he's facing a really grouchy crowd who can't listen anymore because they're hungry. They forgot to bring their lunches. So just like you guys will be in about 40 minutes, you'll be hungry and grouchy. But Jesus is a gracious host, and so he offers, a young boy comes to him and offers his lunch, and Jesus borrows this young boy's lunch and performs a miraculous sign. He feeds an entire crowd of 5,000 men plus all of the women, and children there with just five loaves and a few fish. And the people, the people are impressed, understandably. I mean, what's not to like? You get hungry, Jesus whips up a miraculous meal for you, and so they decide, you know what, we like this idea so much, 
we're just going to follow Jesus wherever he goes because he'll probably provide some more food for us if we stick around long enough. They'll listen to him a bit in their minds. They'll get a little hungry. Jesus will whip up some more food for them. And so look what Jesus says to them in John chapter 6, verse, starting reading in verse 26. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus replied to the crowd, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. Jesus knows that the crowd is thinking with their stomachs. And so he turns to them and he asks them, Hey, gang, don't you think there's something, maybe one or two things that might be a little more important in life than food? Like you think about how hard we work, even in our society, to think about and obtain food which is perishable. And Jesus says, you know, it's important But what about the deeper issues of life? What about spending at least some of that effort going after or thinking about or finding something that nourishes more than just your physical body? What about something that has the capacity to nourish your soul for all eternity? And Jesus says to the crowd, listen, I can give this to you because... God is my father, he says, and I am his son. Jesus claimed throughout, consistently throughout his life, to be one with God the Father, the second person of the Trinity. And embedded right in this discussion about food is this foundational truth claim that Jesus makes about himself. He claimed that he is the son of the living God. Now, before we go any further in our food story... Let's explore that claim just for just a few minutes. We're engaged in a teaching series here at Jericho Ridge called The Red Letters. And the idea behind that is many copies of the Bible have the words of Jesus printed in red. And so we're going through some of the things that Jesus said and asking, what if Jesus really meant what he said? And so in March and April, we're asking questions like what Jesus said about politics, what he said about the poor, what did he say about money and possessions. In April, we're going to be looking at what did Jesus say about things like marriage and family, what did he say about divorce, what did he say about the afterlife, about heaven, about hell. So it should be interesting. I hope you'll join us in person or listen online. But this claim that Jesus makes is really the core of his identity, and it's the core of the Easter message. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, come from heaven to earth with the expressly divine purpose of living the perfect life, dying a vicarious death on the cross where he willingly chose to take upon himself the punishment for your sins and mine. And then on Easter Sunday morning, what we celebrate in the songs that reflected it already, that glorious day when he rose and vindicated his claims with power and authority by raising from the grave and ascending into heaven from whence the Apostles' Creed reminds us he shall come to judge the living and the dead. 
When Jesus says God is his father and therefore he is the son of God, we have to assess that claim and see what is uh, the merits of that claim. As careful researchers and thinkers before me and much more eloquent speakers than I have have laid out, there's kind of three basic options to consider if Jesus is making this kind of a claim. The first option is, well, he's just flat out a bold-faced liar. There's no way that this could be true. That Jesus knows that it's not true, and he's making this claim. Maybe it's a publicity stunt for him, whatever the rationale is. That the one option is that Jesus is a charlatan. He's a con artist, and a good one at that. He's able to convince large amounts of people of his claims and his miraculous works. And the challenge is the historical witness and the contemporary view of Jesus hardly fits into this category. Most people today, if you ask them about Jesus, they'll talk about, well, he's a wise teacher, he's a historical figure, he was well-respected in his day. So the accusation that Jesus is flat out a liar just doesn't quite fit the evidence that we have for us to consider. So what are our other options then? Well, another option is that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, uh, but that he made these claims that he was the Son of God in very public ways. In this scenario, maybe Jesus wasn't lying to people. Maybe he was just so thoroughly disconnected from reality that he didn't know that he wasn't the Son of God. Maybe he was actually a lunatic. Maybe he went around the countryside telling people that he was God, And people believed him for whatever reason, but really, he was just crazy. Well, this falls apart a little bit when you ask yourself, then why would people have followed him like they did? Why would they have devoted themselves with such conviction to Jesus if they were close enough to him to be able to discern his mental state? The people that were closest to him went to their graves insisting that he was who he claimed that it was, sometimes in the face of incredible persecution. People of Jesus' day and people all through history have seen something in him that is deeper and more compelling than a crazy person who makes claims to be God. So another possibility for us to consider in Jesus' experience is that maybe, in fact, it was a legitimate truth claim by Jesus, that he was indeed who he said that he was, the Son of God, one with the Father, fully God, fully man. His miracles, his, his, the historical record of his life, the impact of his teaching, not only on those in his day and time, but down throughout history, and many of the people gathered in this room bear witness to the truth of that claim that Jesus has transformed their lives. And that Jesus who clothed himself in human flesh for 33 years, lived here on this earth some 2,000 years ago, died for one purpose, to reconcile humanity to God and make it possible for you and I to have our sins forgiven, our guilt taken away, and our hope eternally secure in heaven. So each of us at some point in our lives has to wrestle with that question of who is Jesus and who does he say that he is. And if you're in that place of inquiry, We'd love to sit down with you for coffee and explore your questions and objections and uh, let me know. That's why we've got our contact info for some of the staff printed in the info sheet. We'd love to sit down with you and talk with you more about that. As we come back to Jesus' conversation with the crowds, though, the crowds 
didn't challenge the legitimacy of Jesus' claim, interestingly. They had seen his miracles firsthand, and so at minimum, they were actually curious about this possibility that this guy, whomever he was, had some kind of special connection with God. They were curious about the things that he had done and that he said. So they asked him what I think is a great question in John chapter 6, verse 28. They said to him, hey, Jesus, we want to perform God's works too. This is cool stuff. What can we do? What should we do? And Jesus tells them, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one that he has sent. The crowd says, we are totally interested in God. We're very curious about the things that you are up to, and we may even be interested in participating. What should we do? And Jesus' response would have probably sent a mild shock wave through the crowd because of its directness, but also because it pushes against the fibers of our human experience. Jesus says something pretty simple and straightforward. There really is only one thing that God wants from you. Believe in the one that he has sent. And this is the challenge that Jesus still issues for us today. I want you to pause for a moment and think about the answer to this question. Certainly good food for thought. How would you answer the question, what does God require of me? What does God require of me? For my family growing up, the answer to that question was, try to be a good moral person, Do a bit of religious activity every now and then. Get God off your back. But the one thing that nagged at our family was the profound lack of clarity with those two things as a measuring stick. How good was good enough? What if God wanted just a little bit more than we were giving? Right here in his answer, Jesus gives us what is perhaps the most profoundly good news ever declared to humanity. He says, you know what? God only wants one thing from you. Just believe. Your primary work as a human being is to be receptive to God. Jesus' work, as he will go on to explain it later in verse 43 and following, is that Jesus' work is to reveal God the Father, and our work is to receive that revelation and align our lives with it. This is called faith. But the crowd, the crowd isn't thinking with their souls. They're thinking with their stomachs, remember. So they say to Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 30 and 31, okay, okay, yeah, 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 believe. Show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, show us a miraculous sign. What can you do? Do a little parlor trick for us, Jesus. And then they remember and think back in verse 31. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. And the scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they 
actually do have some historical memory here. And they say to Jesus, listen, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, perform a miraculous sign. Now, remember, Jesus just did that, not but 24 hours earlier. And the crowd, in effect, says to him, yeah, but Jesus, that was yesterday. Today is another day, and my stomach isn't full anymore. Feed me, Jesus. But the crowd actually, intriguingly, has enough memory. They can't remember yesterday, but they can remember a story from thousands of years prior in their own religious tradition about an Old Testament story of miraculous bread. The manna that God provided to the children of Israel as they migrated out of Egypt after slavery to the promised land and got sidetracked for 40 years in the desert. And for six mornings a week, for 40 years, without fail, God provided bread from heaven, little kind of flakes of it that they would gather up and could cook and bake and sustained one million people for 40 years in the desert. Now, you want a feeding miracle? That's a feeding miracle. And since this miracle is part of their natural, national psyche, they appeal to Jesus and saying, hey, listen, If you want us to believe, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's keep the food coming, shall we? They're not satisfied with what Jesus did just yesterday for them. 18th century theologian John Wesley once said, Most people have just enough religion to be miserable. Not to be full, but to be miserable. And this was certainly true of this crowd. They're missing what Jesus is saying because they're only thinking with their stomachs. And in his response to their question, Jesus connects some dots for them and gives them a powerful metaphor with an even more powerful promise. Listen to John chapter 6, verses 32 to 34. Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, my Father God did. And now, he's offering you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Sir, they replied, give us that bread every day. They want continuous sustenance. And so Jesus gets real plain with them and says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. There's seven times in the book of John where Jesus says, I am, and then he uses a powerful image. I am, like that video we saw earlier, the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here he says, I am the bread of life. Now, what in the world does Jesus mean when he says, I am the bread of life? It's a bit out there in terms of a metaphor, isn't it? When you first encounter it, it's a little bit like balut. How do you digest it? What's that all about? How do you process it? 
But in the Old Testament, there's actually some groundwork that's laid for us. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 3, and Jesus quoted this earlier in his life and in his mission, God says to people, humanity, in Deuteronomy 6, 3, humanity will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, God is quite clear that we need as human beings more than just physical nourishment to sustain ourselves. There's a dimension to each of our lives that is beyond the physical, and that dimension is the spiritual dimension of our lives, and it requires nourishment. Each of us has a soul that doesn't draw its sustenance from what we shove into our mouths each day. Our souls need a deeper and more sustained source of nourishment. I don't know today what your story is, and I don't know if you were asked how you would describe your strategy for filling your soul. Many people in our culture try to nourish their soul with all kinds of things. Just shout out some answers. What are some things, good, bad, or indifferent, that you think people in our culture try to fill their souls with? Go ahead and shout out answers. Sorry, money? Money, yeah, absolutely. What else? Media? Starbucks. Starbucks. That almost nourishes my soul. It comes very close to touching my soul. We might have to debate that one. All right, a good cup of coffee might nourish my soul. What else? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What else? Works. Works. Yeah. What can I do either to impress other people or maybe even on the religious side like we talked about before in that previous question, what is it that God wants from us? Maybe it would be good to just do a bunch of good works and try and get God. Maybe if I went to Guatemala, build a few houses, maybe God would be really impressed with me. Try and fill my soul that way. What else? Yeah, Absolutely. We, a lot of us try and, and fill our souls with things that we pull in from other dimensions in our lives, either our hobbies or our work, our vocations. There's lots of answers to this question. But Jesus here says something quite simple and profound. He says, listen, if you want food for a hungry soul, that's me. Jesus is claiming, he says, I am the bread of life. He's claiming to be that which one needs in order to have life on an ongoing basis. Life that begins now and continues into eternity. In other words, Jesus is saying to the crowds, you guys are hungry, but you're missing the point. I am capable of satisfying your deepest spiritual hunger. I am the bread of life of life. In verse 35, he goes on to say, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again, talking on the spiritual front. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, those that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will never reject them. Verse 37. 
Now, Jesus is not saying here that hunger and thirst will never again rise up, obviously in our physical bodies. He's speaking spiritually here. But even that, he's, he's not saying that hunger and thirst will never rise up in our souls again. But he is saying that I am telling you, you, know, you now know where to go when your soul gets hungry. You know where to turn for healthy and sustaining and life-giving nourishment. Later in this conversation, Jesus actually is so convinced that they are not hearing what he's saying that he deepens the offense. And in chapter 6, verse 56, he says, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. He says to them, it's like you're going to eat my body. It's like you're going to drink my blood. And in fact, the early Christians in the first century, this actually led people in Jerusalem and Rome and other large urban centers in the first century to accuse the early Christians of cannibalism because they literally thought when they gathered together that they were eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood. But what those early disciples and followers of the way were doing is that which is practiced by the church universally around the globe still to this day, the Eucharist or communion. It's that night on the Thursday before Good Friday where Jesus sat together with his disciples in an upper room and said to them, I'm breaking this bread. This is my body. This represents, it's a sign of my body that is going to be broken for you. And this cup that we share is a sign of my blood that will be poured out for you. And so next weekend, we'll celebrate that here at Jericho Ridge. And when we do that, just like we participate with the church around the world, we look backwards to the events of Good Friday and Easter, but we also look forward to the time when Jesus is coming again in the consummation of human history or to the place and time where you and I draw our last breath and step into our eternal existence and for those who know and trust him enter into a gift of eternal life. And this is where Jesus finishes his discussion with the crowd because he wants them not to miss it with a focus on resurrection, which we celebrate here at Easter. Look with me at John 6, verses 38 to 40. Jesus says to them, I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those that he has given me, but I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus here makes his final promise that just as at that first Easter morning, almost 2,000 years distant, God the Father raised Jesus from the grave, that those who have faith in him will also share in that experience. But Jesus draws a clear parallel here between the crowd and those who are his followers and his disciples. He says, you haven't believed in me, to the crowd in verse 36, even though you have seen me. And so as we close this portion of our time looking at God's word this morning, 
I want to ask you to reflect and respond on the difference between those two realities. Seeing and believing. Because you see, seeing isn't believing, it's actually just seeing. You can observe a wonderful meal that's prepared for you, all you want. But until you sit down at the table and partake in it, it doesn't nourish you in any way as visually appealing as it may be. Seeing isn't believing. It's just seeing. And Jesus says, in his day as in ours, there are a wide multitude of people who observe Jesus, who observe people in relationship with him, who observe the adventure of living life in, uh, under God's trusting hand and in right relationship with him. They see it, but they choose to kind of stay at a bit of arm's length from it. And Jesus says, well, that's still just seeing. That isn't believing. Believing means something different. Believing, Jesus says, that I am the bread of life means that you affirm that you and I need far more than just sustenance for our lives. We need life itself to feed our souls. We need something that nourishes us at that deeper and more profound and eternally sustaining level. Dustin and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in two songs that speak to this reality. The first one is a song that expresses and just gives word, uh, words to that hunger that Jesus says that he is capable of fully fulfilling. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, yeah, you know, there, there is something in my heart, in my life, in my soul that just... It's, it's malnourished at some level. There's something that isn't quite, I'm not quite full. I'm not living life to the full. And Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I'm here to nourish your soul at the deepest and most profound level, he says. Maybe you're here this morning, you have kind of an ache or a longing in your soul that needs to be filled. Maybe you haven't given a lot of thought before this morning, but I would encourage you not to leave without attending to that in some way. Jesus says if you come to him in faith to receive the gift of life that he offers, he will fulfill it. And not just in this life, but in the life to come. Our prayer team would love to pray with you today and would love to respond and uh, help you navigate what it means to have your soul filled. Our prayer team will be available at the sides and it doesn't have to be something that's huge in your life that you're going to talk to them or talk to God about. It can be something to simply express your thanks to God on this wonderful day. It can be something to, that you want to share with them that's going on in your life that you say, this is just a challenge that I'm having and I want somebody to pray with me about it. Our prayer team would love to serve you in that way. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we sing these songs of response. 
I invite you to just take time if these words are new or unfamiliar to you. Just allow them to sink in. Allow the words to become meaningful to you. This song is really phrased as a prayer that we want to offer. And we would invite you to offer, saying, Jesus, I'm hungry and I need you to fill me at the deepest and most soul-sustaining level. Let's worship together.